Hey, everybody, welcome to the Grow Yourself podcast. I'm your host, Kevin McNulty, and this is your personal development school of growth, where each week my guests and I will bring and break down big ideas and practices that will help you learn, grow, and succeed in life. Thanks for checking us out. Now, let the growth begin. Hello, everybody. Welcome again to another episode of Grow Yourself. Listen, folks, I got to be honest with you that uh, it's not every day that, um, you know, that we, I come across what I would consider true heroes, you know, that is individuals who who really have dedicated their lives to to others and, and to their country. And today I will, I say very uh, sincerely, today is a very special podcast episode. I have the privilege of sharing with you a story that is of one truly remarkable person. I came to know Lee many years ago at a, at a speaker's convention. And then I had the pleasure, of course, of reading his, one of his many books, I should say. And, uh, but then also had the privilege of speaking to him personally and learning a little bit more about him. And again, I, I say this in, in earnest, I, I just was truly inspired by his journey. And I can promise you this, you will, you will also. Uh, this person who has not only excelled in so many ways, but uh, as I said, has also displayed really immense courage, resilience in the face of, frankly, for most of us, just unimaginable adversary, adversity. And so let me just share a little bit more about who he is. Uh, as president of Leading with Honor, uh, a leadership and team development training coaching company, Lee Ellis, that is Colonel Lee Ellis coaches uh, with Fortune 500 senior executives in the areas of hiring, team building, human performance, and succession planning. And I know he also talks about so many other things that um, that help us grow as human beings, as as um, as professional beings, as spiritual beings. And, and we're going to learn a lot more about that. Uh, his media appearances, by the way, include interviews on such networks as CNN, CBS This Morning, C-SPAN, ABC World News, and the Fox News Channel. And early in his career, Lee, Lee served in as in in the as a U.S. Air Force uh, pilot, and so he is therefore, as most of you all know, I'm a retired Air Force um, person, and uh, so I consider him a, a brother and a comrade. But he was an Air Force pilot uh, flying 53. 53 combat missions over North Vietnam. And then in 1967, he was shot down and held as a POW for more than five years in Hanoi and, and surrounding camps. So for his wartime service, he of course uh, was awarded two silver stars, the legend, uh, the Legion of Merit, the bronze star with valor device, the purple heart and uh, the POW medal. Lee then resumed his Air Force career, serving uh, in a variety of leadership roles, increasing responsibility, including uh, commanding a flying squadron and in, in organizations, you know, displaying leadership and leadership development before retiring from the Air Force as a colonel. Uh, and then uh, it only starts there again. Uh, as a retired Air Force colonel, his latest best-selling book entitled Captured by Love, Inspiring True Romance Stories, uh, true mo uh, Inspiring True Romance Stories from Vietnam POWs. But listen, uh, this is only one of not one, two, three, four, or five, but seven books, including an amazing book that I read many years ago called Leading with Honor, Leadership Lessons from the Hanoi Hilton. 
You can learn a lot more about Lee and we'll we'll share these links later on and in, in, in the show notes, but uh, you can just go to leadingwithhonor.com. And so if you would, ladies and gentlemen, would you uh, welcome my friend, my, my comrade, my spiritual brother, uh, Colonel Lee Ellis. Colonel, I got to salute you. You know, that's the way it works, doesn't it? God bless you. Thanks so much for being here. Well, thank you, Kevin. Great to be with you. Uh, we both have a good background of wearing blue and sometimes being in the blue skies. And we both uh, faced a lot of things over our career. But, you know, we're both blessed to be here, aren't we? We are very, very both blessed to be here. You know, Lee, I'm I'm curious about so many different things about your life, but I really want to start, as I often do, uh, just ask, you know, who is Lee Ellis? You know, where did where did your life start? And just kind of bring us up to this this place. And I have a ton of questions to ask, but I want folks to know who you are as a person. Yeah, I grew up in North Georgia, uh, kind of the Red Hills. It's not the real hills, but it was red and a little bit hilly between Athens and Commerce, Georgia. The University of Georgia was 10 miles away. And uh, of course, my mother's brother had played football there in the late 20s, and his two sons had played in the 50s. So I've been watching Georgia football games all my life. Wow. I thought I was going to be the quarterback. When I graduated from high school, I was going to go there and be the quarterback, but I only weighed 155 pounds. I didn't have long hands, uh, fingers to throw passes with, and I wasn't the fastest guy on the team. But I knew what I wanted to do, the number two thing. Growing up on that farm, one time when I was about five or six years old, my parents took me to the Veterans Park in Athens, Georgia, and there was a World War II fighter plane there. Oh my. my dad picked me up and set me up on the wing, and I went over and got around the fuselage and the canopy and looked around, and I thought, this is me. This is what I'm going to do. Wow. And from then on, and I played a lot of sports, I football, baseball, basketball, ran track, all those kind of things. But the thing I really wanted to do someday was to fly airplanes. So when I got to the University of Georgia, and by the way, I grew up in a unique era. Hmm. In the 1950s, I was plowing mules. Even in the early 60s, I graduated from high school in 61. But five years later, I was flying supersonic jets. So I went from plowing mules what a what a unique uh, era in history to go from plowing mules to flying supersonic. I, I mean, I haven't read all of your books, but is is one of them from mules to jets or something? I mean, that'd be a good. That would be a good title. <laughs> but I have a couple of pictures that I use sometimes when I'm speaking because I want to make sure people know younger people know what a mule is. You know, yes. <laughs> it's like. <laughs> but you know, I always enjoyed being outside. I was always good at being adventurous. Uh, I was, uh, my mom was a school teacher and, uh, I always had uh, a good ability to take risk, but not too far. Mm -hmm. And when you're a fighter pilot, you have to take risk every day, but you have to know where the edge is. And you have to know that when you go past that edge, you know, you're at great risk and, uh, you better be able to handle it. And so that really helped me be both confident. And uh, situationally aware that uh, it fit in well with doing that. So I wanted to fly, and um, I'm a good risk taker, uh, and have a lot of confidence in my ability. I started driving cars and trucks when I was 11 on that farm. I was still plowing mules, but I was driving cars and big trucks and tractors and all that. So I was always into stuff 
learning how to do it and uh, uh, believing that I could do it, you know, and I usually could. So that gave me the confidence. Now, I will tell you that I was probably the worst student that ever graduated from the University of Georgia in four years because <laughs> I didn't study much. But I passed enough to get through in four years, and I was a distinguished graduate of Air Force ROTC because that was really what my interest was. Wow. So, now, uh, later, as in a, in a time in my life, there were some things that helped me learn to be uh, more studious and to do my homework, always do my homework. But I didn't in high school and college. <laughs> That's interesting, though. I, I'm, I'm hearing you loud and clear. So uh, I had a good home, my good parents. Uh, we grew up going to church every Sunday. Uh, I knew that God had a plan for me, and I felt like I knew what it was and that I was going to work hard to go do it. And sometimes I crossed over the line when I was a little wild. But, uh, you know, fighter pilots can get that way sometimes. Yes, I know that. <laughs> Always uh, treating people properly sure. and uh, trying to do my duty and live with integrity and honesty. You know, I'm just thinking about this and I, and it seems to me that folks who grow up in, um, you know, in, in farm scenarios, in, you know, I, I guess I'm trying to, to, to think about scenarios where there's, there, there's a little bit more extraordinary work. There's, there are, there are natural laws and lessons that you work with. And I was just listening to what you said about uh, stepping to the edge. And I, I think that's a phenomenal statement that did that literally, you know, was that one of the principles that you worked towards? And that is that you understood that there's an edge somewhere. And that if I may add this, that you would never know your potential until you pushed it to the edge to see what you're made of, I guess you could say. Yeah, I think so. And, you know, in flying and air combat type flying, you're 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 over the edge of where most people would be comfortable. Well, fair right? enough. Yeah. But you got to believe that I'm in control and I'm doing this right. And I'm 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 situationally aware of all the things that I've been trained well, of all the things that are happening. And I'm still in control. But I know that if I go one step more then something may happen. Now, there's a time when you have to take that risk and go one or two steps more and go past that boundary uh, because in order to accomplish the mission or to get yourself out of a mess, you may have to do that. But you know that there, that you're you're in the, in the danger zone That's and you know you better be accountable for it. Lee and I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna jump ahead just a little here. I want to get us back on track, but I I just want to follow you on this principle and this this idea that you're talking about because I think when we talk about grow yourself, you know, this is a really interesting and important principle about going to the edge. So how do you, if I could shape this question right, how do you, you know, how do you uh, guide or how do you tell or explain to let's say younger people or just you know or whatever it doesn't matter you know sort of the the idea of, of how you push yourself to the edge how do you tell people to do that i don't know if the question makes any sense well i think you've got to know where the edge is uh, well See, that was part of, uh, one of the things that we learned mm -hmm. is where is the edge and when you get over it 
you know, how many G's can you pull? Okay. Mm. What happens when you pull too many G's? Yeah. What happens you go to negative G's? Mm. Uh, what happens to your airplane mm. when you do that? And sometimes you might have to do that, but you know, you know, you call them and say, hey, like one time um, I was taking off on Saturday. Mm -hmm. um, I was a young major, I think. And uh, I was had the duty on Saturday to take some any uh, people go cross country in a C-38 on Saturday. And if somebody broke down, they at some, some other base, uh, they would need some parts to get their airplane fixed. And so we always had somebody on duty to take parts out on Saturday. And uh, so on Saturday and Sunday. So when I got alerted, hey, get in here and got to take some parts down. Two bases in Florida, two airplanes were down. And uh, okay, so I got in there and I uh, did my pre-flight, strapped in, took off, taxied out, took off. And I got the 155 knots. That's about 175 miles an hour. And I pulled the nose stick to pull the nose up and it wouldn't come up. And the stick wouldn't go back any further. Oh. Well, that's not good. I, I knew I had to abort, and so I aborted, and I was able to stop before, just before I got to the end of the runway. But I had stood on those brakes. I just pushed the button and called the tower and said, "Moody Tower, you know, uh, Jake One Two here. Uh, you better call the fire department and tell them I'll meet them out in the uh, cool down zone." Because that those I knew that those brakes were going to turn red hot and I might see. even explode and blow up and catch the airplane on fire. Because they're still full of fuel, and, right? Yeah. And so, yeah. And so I called them and told them, and uh, they sent them out there, and I pulled over in the, in the safe zone and where they could come in, and they checked it out. And I got out and went and got another airplane and took off and went, carried the stuff down there. <laughs> but here's wow. the thing. That's incredible. When I, we found out the problem was that the crew chief had tied down the equipment in the back seat because it's empty. I'm in the front seat, the pilot. It's a two-seat airplane. And he had tied down the back seat and turned the, the, the seat that you sit on, which also has a parachute in it, upside down. And when he turned it or flipped it around, and the back seat in the T-38 has a notch in it so the stick can come back. My okay. goodness gracious. That notch in there. Well, he turned it around and that no notch there oh, on that stick. Got it. Yeah. So I guess you could say it was a little bit my fault for not really checking him. Yeah. Well, he was connecting it all up and I looked and it was all connected and I didn't examine that seat. Right. But, uh, you know, yeah. it was what it was. No, no, absolutely. That's a fascinating story, you know, and, and I guess as, as I, again, as I sort of think about this, you know, going to the edge, because I, I don't say these words necessarily, but even when I'm, uh, you know, on a com completely different scenario, when I'm teaching middle school players how to play tennis, you know, I'm talking to them about a similar concept of going out on the court to play a match and maybe being as aggressive as a, aggressive as they can, but without, to your point, without, you know, I, I tell them it's controlled aggression. You know, you're, you're pushing yeah. the limits, but at the same time, you're not, I'm not saying go get crazy, you know, right. go wild, hit swing as hard as you can. Right. But how hard can you swing? And then I think about those in other contexts, 
like maybe you know talking to your boss you have to stand up to a boss what i was thinking about talking to your boss yeah. you got to know where the edge is and when to go over it or talking to your people mm-hmm. when you know, you know one of the hardest things for me is uh, i'm pretty comfortable talking to my boss because you know what's he going to do fire me i've been a pow i don't care you know <laughs> yeah, right there you but, go uh, talking to your people that work with you or somebody in your family mm-hmm. is you got to think it through about where is the edge for this person and where is the edge for this person. And I don't want to get much over the edge because uh, after that, they won't be listening. They'll be feeling uh, emotionally against right. me or I'm attacking them or something. So you got to figure out how I can do that. So it doesn't feel like I'm pushing them over the edge. Wow, that's a it's such a great principle, really, to learn by. And yeah. here we're learning from from not just a, a pilot, but a POW. So before we get into that, though, because I, 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 you know, of course, our audience, like maybe the millions of people who have listened to you already tell this story, is just going to be fascinated. But I'd like to explore. So you, so you joined the Air Force. What year did you get it? Go in sixty five. You went in the Air Force in sixty five. Yep. And I went in and I got commissioned on July the 24th. And three days later, I signed in at Moody the 27th. Okay. And started flight school on August 6th, 53 or 54 weeks later, I graduated and got my wings. And the assignment said, this is August 6th of 1966, a year later, an assignment for over half the guys in my class at all eight training bases. Okay. So there were several hundred of them over half of them. Their assignment said F4 pipeline, Southeast Asia, oh, which yeah. as quick as we could get combat qualified in the F4, we were going to war. Wow. Well, I was going to ask you about your experience of flying before going to war, but those two things seem to coincide, but I would be interested to know just a little bit about the experience of flying an f4 just generally speaking what that's yeah. like how do you tell a uh, civilian this yeah it was a very uh powerful two j79 engines burned a good bit of fuel but it had a lot of power and um now as a fighter it was designed originally to be a long-range interceptor for the navy oh my because it it's a big plane be, right yeah but it designed to be a bomber or attack airplane i see and it really even not an air-to-air combat it was go out and intercept those bombers that were coming after the ships yeah. and shoot them down but the air force and marine corps and the navy all made it into a fighter uh type airplane yeah so it had a lot of power so it could work well vertically like if you got in a dog fight but it wasn't as it wasn't a turn as well as as the migs yeah some of the older airplanes we had, it wouldn't turn as fast as they would. So if we're in a dogfight, we worked vertically because we had more power than they did. Oh, very interesting. Like that way. But it was a, a great airplane and it had two two uh, pilots. Well, in the Navy and Marine Corps, they had a uh, naval flight officer, uh, Wizzo in the back street, uh, weapons, uh, yeah. uh, weapons support officer. But in the Air Force, they were going to outsmart the DOD and get more pilots. And so what they did was the Air Force said, we'll put pilots in the backseat. Interesting. And so all the guys that were coming out of UPT going to go to fire, had to go to the backseat for a year or two and then upgrade to the front seat. So I went to the backseat. Now, some of the guys that were flying in the front seat were uh, guys that had never flown fighters before. 
and uh, they'd been flying tankers and mm-hmm. cargoes and B-52s, and yeah. they were. I was I was more equipped and helped them become a fighter pilot, <laughs> even though because I'd flown the T thirty eight, which is a fighter type weapon. Right, 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 right. So anyway, but you know they were in charge and control and command. Sure. So. So then it worked, but I was ready to get in the front seat. I bet you were. Yeah. I mean, as all, all good fighter pilots would want to do that. Mm-hmm. So then, uh, so then Colonel in, in, uh, you know, seven November, 1967, uh, uh, was a, was a, a game changer for you. Wasn't it to yep. put it lightly? Tell us about that. Set that up for us. If you would. Well, I was on my, uh, 53rd combat mission. I had about 15 more missions over North Vietnam. Mm-hmm. I had about 15 other over South Vietnam and Laos. Laos interdiction missions, dropping bombs on the roads and that sort of thing. And uh, south in the northern part of South Vietnam, we flew close air support to help the Marines and Army infantry on the ground. When they got attacked, we'd come in and bomb the people, straight from bomb the people attacking them to help them out. So that was close air support. So had some of both of those, but most of my missions were uh, bombing over North Vietnam, bombing the roads, bombing trucks, uh, bombing the bridges, that sort of thing. Anything mm-hmm. to stop them from hauling stuff into the South. Mm-hmm. And we normally took off, uh, in, in for those bombing runs, we took off in two ships. Now, if you're going on a combat air patrol uh, where you're protecting the bombers up around Hanoi, uh, and MiGs were out and lots of other stuff, then you flew in four ships. And usually there'd be four, four ships. So it'd be 16 airplanes in either bombing or 16 airplanes protecting the bombers. So it was, uh, it was, uh, exciting. We got shot at most every mission. I got bullet holes in my airplane several times, but that particular day, uh, the airplane just blew up into several pieces and started flipping. And uh, as quick as it got positive G's and I could flip, which was in a second or two, uh, and I could eject, I pulled the handle and ejected, and my partner in the airplane did too. We both ejected safely. And, uh, you know, we're 3,000 feet maybe. And there's just all sorts of anti-aircraft artillery and soldiers on the ground shooting up at our wingman, and maybe at us. I could see the bullets going by, the tracers going by. And but I didn't worry about that. I just worried about trying to uh, do my parachute landing fall and escape before they could capture me. But they surrounded me and captured me within 90 seconds. Oh, wow. Took two weeks to get to Hanoi. And the only way that uh, uh, the thing that really helped me was the guy in charge of taking me north was a wonderful soldier. He was tough, but he was a good man and he had orders to bring us in alive. And because of his character, he wouldn't allow people to beat us up. And you this know. is a North. Uh, this is the, the 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 your captor. Yes, our captor. Wow. And the crazy thing—I don't want to go into this now—but I really admired him. And because of a typhoon and some bombing and floods and bombing that had blown out the road and washed out the road, we had to wait three days to go north toward Hanoi, and he was in charge of taking me north. And so he took me to his home, which they had moved out of their home, and they lived in a bomb shelter, like uh, a cave, 
right near sand and there were sand dunes near the Gulf of Tonkin and that's where they lived was right down below those and they had dug in there and had this cave in the sand dune and I stayed with them for three days and nights and a guy from Dong Hoi who knows some Air Force pilots that have been back over there that's where I was close to where I was captured have gone in and they talked to their guy and he went and interviewed to find the guy that was responsible for taking me north. And he died in 2015 hmm. and talked to his wife. And she told him about me coming to their house. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? This was a year and a half ago. That's so, incredible. And how, and how, and, and they treated me like I was a guest almost, except I was, my hands were tied and my feet were tied at night. So I couldn't jump up and run around. I mean, how do you make sense of that? I mean, you talk about cognitive dissonance. I mean, just, you know, you know, but, but if I may just, and I don't, I don't want to take you off, off your flow here, but, you know, may I ask Lee, when you, when you landed, when you landed your with your parachute and they're coming at you, can you even recall what was in your head at the time, yeah. what you were thinking? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm interested to know that. I mean, what... Yeah. Were, were you were you trying to uh, this may sound crazy but were you I trying wish to I could problem solve first, i wish i could read the first page in the first chapter but i talk about that because i did my parachute landing fall and i'd already made i got my radio out emergency radio and i called the wingman i said hey i'm 200 meters north of the river start strafing at 300 i'm headed south to the river then I put it down and I disconnected my parachute. And I was down in an old bomb crater and I was about to jump out and run to the river. And all of a sudden they surrounded me and captured me. I mean, it happened that quick. And so I went from being totally focused on what I was doing. Oh, no, let me back up. They started popping out Four, about four of them popped out behind these bushes there. Oh, wow. And, and they had their right AK 47, AK 47 yeah. rifle. Like this. Yeah. And I thought, well, these are, they told us that the people capturing you are the least, uh, uh, least uh, know how to do that. You, that's the best time to escape when you first get captured. I hadn't been captured yet, but I pulled out my 38 revolver and I motioned for these guys to get away. And they didn't move. And I fired around the tracer over their head and they should have shot me and they didn't. They just went, and one of them pulled out a little uh, pointy talkie was a little piece of uh, paper that had on one side it had Vietnamese, on the other side it had English and phonetic. And he's looking at it and he says, Hands up, hands up, Sharinda no die, Sharinda no die. And I thought, you know, he's probably right. Yeah, you <laughs> so know what? <laughs> and so I put my hands up and they captured me. Yeah, I mean, crazy. You know, yeah. You so I was really focused on. Yeah getting away until they captured me. And then I went into the shock and just, ah, you know. Yeah. And what, and was there a point that you can recall that you came sort of maybe out of that shock to the point where you're starting to think about, again, problem solving or, you know, what do I do now? Or just trying to think through this? Yeah, I did right away. But it was like, I don't, my thinking was, I don't know what's going to happen next. I don't know what's going to happen next. Good. And that's when I just said, Lord, you're in control. 
I'm not. And I'm just going to do my best to be, do my duty. And if I have a chance to escape, I'll escape. And if I don't, I won't. And I'll just hang in here. Is it? I don't know. I, I mean, it's, you know, I guess, especially, uh, you know, it, it's, it's a, I wouldn't say it's strictly a Southern term, but, you know, we, we often use the term, you know, we're, we're, we're blessed. And yeah. did, did you feel that way once you realized that your captor yeah. might've been I, one of I, the I, nicest guys? <laughs> knowing that I was able to eject out of the airplane and not get badly injured and my lip was cut. Yeah. Bad. I had another cut under here. Yeah. I had a uh, cut back here. And then that that the next morning when I woke up, I could not raise my head up more than about right there because it had it had been so stretched and injured by the eighteen G's going out of the ejection. Eighteen G's. Yes, eighteen G's going up the ejection ramp. But weren't didn't you say that the plane? The old, had... the old ones. See, it had a it had a canister in there that blew up I and see. exploded. The new ones had a, a more of a rocket that. It was spread out over time, over a second, whereas an initial one, boom, yeah. just pushed you out. And and didn't you say that the the jet was was kind of flipping as well? So I mean, yeah, how, how did how did you how do you decide when to hit the eject? You oh, just I knew it was. I knew it was totally going to crash. It was totally out yeah. of control. The, the, we had no control over it. It wasn't even airplane anymore. Yeah. All it was was a yeah. big. Big old canopy toppling to- through space. I see. So yeah, <laughs> so there was not like even a decision to be made. Yeah, I see. No, yeah. no. But I had we had lost uh, two F fours and all four members, uh, pilots in it, were killed when I was at George Air Force Base going through my F four training. They were class behind me, and and within six weeks, two F fours went down, and the pilots stayed in it and got killed. And our wing commander called all the pilots to the officers club. And he went on a rant and screamed and yelled, you've got to know when to get out. And he was right. And I thought, I won't ever have to worry. I'll know when to get out. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Boy, there's the lesson. And so, okay. So you're, and I, I know we have limited time here and I want to get on to your, your next book, but your, your, your current book. So you're, you're with this, uh, you're with this family, I guess. And, 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 and at this point you realize already realize that this was a decent man that you're dealing with, despite him being your enemy. So maybe just take us from there and then about what, what took place in, in Hanoi Hilton. Yeah, we get a, uh, I stopped in Venn. They had a, a holding pen there basically, and, uh, joined up with two other guys we spent about three days in Ben, and then we went on to Hanoi. We got, and by the way, we were strafed and bombed twice, but they didn't strafe and bomb us, but we were close to where they were on the way up there. So we heard all that going on. Uh, we got to Hanoi two weeks later and uh, are put in a cell. The four of us in there are put in the same cell, six and a half by seven foot cell. So you know, that's about the size of a small bathroom and a gas station in the South. <laughs> so, uh, and we lived in there eight, uh, 24 hours a day for the next eight months. And we started having some interrogations, but it was right before Christmas. And there were lots of people captured in the fall of 67. They had so many guys there and uh, they 
we had fewer interrogations than most people, and they weren't that serious yet. But after Christmas and the New Year and after Tet, they started getting tough, wanting us to fill out forms of uh, biographies, uh, answer questions about the military and all this kind of stuff. And that's when we went through torture. We all went through torture. And so uh, we learned then that they could make you do something and they wouldn't let you die. And there was a, eventually you're going to have to give them something, but you gave as little as possible. I filled out a three page biography. And the only thing that was true on there was my father's first and last name. Everything else was a lie. But I, when I did that, I was so ashamed that I wasn't tough enough not to give them anything that I laid there and cried. And I, that was the most worthless I've ever felt. And then a little while, a few hours later, I got back in my cell and one guy had already been back. <laughs> he didn't last as long as I did. And then another one, this, our guy that became our cell leader, he was tougher than me. He was a New York State wrestling champion. He laughed hours after I did. And then we learned that everybody up there, eventually we learned that everybody up there had been tortured and done something, but gave them as little as possible and bounced back. And that was our whole plan. You know, Lee, how do how do you how do you manage that in your mind? I mean, I, listen, I, I, I'm just trying to think through this, that you, there's a probably a wide, fairly wide spectrum of people there with personalities and belief systems and, and ethics and, and all these other sorts of things that we know about. But how do you just, you know, as as a man, you know, decide to to um, to to be a great patriot, if you will? A, a well, great I think, man you know, in any in anything you're doing, whether it's marriage or being a POW or being a leader in any corporation, commitment is so important. Mm -hmm. And we were committed to our mission. We were committed. We had all memorized the six articles of the uh, code, code of conduct, the military mm -hmm. code of conduct. Mm -hmm. came about after the Korean War when a lot of them collaborated with the enemy. Mm -hmm. And Basically, it says you'll be loyal to your country, mm -hmm. you know, collaborate with your allies, and you'll be faithful to your teammates. Basically, that's what it says. Mm -hmm. And so we were committed to that. And so that was our our goal. And sometimes they could we weren't as strong as we'd like to be. They could make you do something. And the goal was to give them something that ain't worth nothing. Because <laughs> it's still a battle. It's still a battle. We're not giving up. Mm. Wow. So Lee, how do you, how do you express this idea? And I wouldn't su suggest to you, of course, that people in corporate America or private citizens don't have integrity and, and, and these levels of character, but that's a whole different level there uh, of character development. And how do you talk to people about how they create this inside of their organization or, you know, be it private, you know, business, or, you know, it could be any type of an organization. Yeah, I think you have to clarify it. You know, you can't just assume that everybody thinks this way. And one of the most important things as a leader, you have to clarify the boundaries of your organization. We're really struggling with that in our today's culture. There's no boundaries in Washington, D.C. hardly at all for our leaders up there. But think about at home, children growing up. Think about driving on the interstate from here into Atlanta or to from Atlanta to Birmingham, 
Um, the speed limit is 65 miles an hour. Most people are driving 70 to 75, but there's a group of people that are weaving in and out going 85 and 90. Yeah. Because right. they have not been held accountable to boundaries and nobody's held accountable right now. And so you have to clarify those boundaries and expectations for your culture and let people know that when they get over the boundaries, something bad is going to happen. You're going to hold them accountable. And they got to be responsible. So that's what uh, is so needed is responsibility and accountability for people to follow. And now we have we understood that very well back then. This was, uh, you know, we grew up in the 50s and I came on active duty in 65. So all the leaders, the senior leaders, the colonels and all had been in World War II in Korea. So they, you know, it was pretty much clear boundaries. So I think you've got to really make it clear and but at the same time, you have to show people you care for. Them. So, Lee, you know, uh, I mean, you've already kind of gotten into it a little bit, but I do, I do want to ask you sort of the general question about what were the early days at the Hanoi Hilton like? Yeah, that was uh, you know, we had no idea what to expect. It had taken me two weeks to get there. And then I was uh, went through an interrogation with three other guys, and they are the three that rode the truck up from Ben to Hanoi. Mm -hmm. We'd been together for several days. And then uh, we had this uh, office uh, manager, you might say, the camp officer, who had worked hard to memorize a lot of American idioms. Hmm. And we sit on these low stools now. They're higher, so they have to look down at us. We have to look up at them. See, and he's sitting there with. The and that was intentional, right? Oh yeah, yeah, to make them superior oh, or whatever. Okay, got right. it. Right, yeah. exactly. So we have to be uh, mm. looking up to them, and so um, he had a camp um, turnkey on either side. Guys that had the keys and kind of ran the show in each uh, block. And guards behind us with their AK-47s. And he sits down and he goes like this. And now the fat is in the fire. And, of course, I'm sitting there my first morning uh, night at a POW camp. Actually, first day at a POW camp. And this guy says this. And I just want to break out laughing. <laughs> say, say that again one more time. He's and now the fat is in the fire. The fact is in the fire. That's an old saying, you know, from south. That means you're in trouble. You're in trouble. Okay. <laughs> the fat is in the fire. It's going to burn. You know. Okay. The fat is in the fire. Got it. Oh yeah. Sizzling here ahead in the day ahead. <laughs> and so it was scary, but at the same time, yeah. I just almost broke out laughing in his face. You know. And uh, anyway, so that was my introduction. The first English words in the Hanoi Hilton. But he went on to tell us we had to follow the camp rules. So they were posted in every cell on the door, inside of the door of every cell there, which basically said that we couldn't communicate with anybody. We had to do everything they told us to do, uh, always obey them, that kind of thing. Were they particularly like, I mean, you talk about, of course, the, the one man that brought you up there and he had a conscience, obviously. Yeah. You know, and I don't know how many, uh, say, Vietnamese that you, you uh, interacted with, but were, were they, what was their typical demeanor towards you and, and your Well, comments? the people in the camps were generally, the, uh, the turnkeys had to be people kind of neutral. I see. They would tell us what to do and kind of mumble some broken English. Yeah. 
they didn't, you know, they kind of frown at you sometimes, but they didn't try to harass us. Okay. Their job was to open the door, let us go out to bathe if we went out that day to bathe, let us go out to empty the bucket. Now we're in a six and a half by seven foot cell. Jeez. Okay, six and a half feet is six inches wider than my arm spread and seven feet a, a foot deeper. And there's four guys in this cell yeah, in the next eight months. We went after that meeting with they took had the turnkey take us to our cell. And the turnkeys uh, really opened the doors and let you come out twice a day to get your food. We got served uh, a meal in the morning about 10 o'clock and about 4.30 in the afternoon, pretty close together. Uh, that way it fit their schedule. And we had basically six months of watery pumpkin soup, three months of cabbage soup, and three months of what we call uh, sewer green soups, which are like chopped up lily pads. The good thing was it was boiled and that killed the germs. Uh, the bad thing, there was sometimes some bugs and worms floating in it at different times of the year. It depends on what was hatching out. Yeah. Sometimes there'd be a pig's eye in there or, you know, you never knew what was going to be in there. But, uh, you know, it uh, and then we in addition to that, there was a cup of rice or a, a small baguette of French bread. That fat baguette of French bread was really our protein. Yeah, I get that. So, Lee, what was the, you know, what were the one or two or whatever the most challenging aspects for you personally? Well, the fact that I had three cellmates and I wasn't by myself was a real plus. Yeah. Um, the fact that we were alone and isolated, our cell walls did not touch any other walls. That's how isolated oh, that part of the Hanoi Hilton was that I was in. So that was a, a little bit concerning. But I think the thing that bothered me the most was when I was pulled out for interrogation. They wanted me to fill out a, well, they brought a three-page uh, biography to, for us all to fill out in our cell. And so the three of us, uh, we put down, one guy put some stuff in, the other three of us just put name, rank, service number, date of birth. Mm. And that was it. I know that pissed and, uh, then uh, a few days later, they called us in and said, you didn't fill it out. You must do it now. And I said, I'm not going to do it. And we were by ourselves then. And they pulled us all out at that day and said, not going to do it. And so they brought the torturers in. They put us in handcuffs and leg irons and put us on. They, they really weren't the real torturers, but it was going to be humane torture. So they put us on our knees on the concrete slab floor. And we had to put, our, we were in handcuffs but we had to put our arms over our head on the wall so after a few hours you know i sat back down and they came in and grabbed me and started kicking me and hitting me and put me back up on my knee pulled me back up on my knees so i went a few more hours and same thing happened again and then the third time i went a few more hours and same thing happened again and finally i decided uh you know i can't beat them at this somewhere in there i've got to do something different yeah. So I decided I would fill in the three-page biography, and I said, okay, I'll do it. And I did. They took the handcuffs off, and I did. And I was in leg irons, too, at that time. I filled in the three-page biography, but the only thing I put on there that was true was my father's first and last name, hoping someday I'd write a letter home to my oh, parents wow. Wow. and get one. So everything else was a lie. And uh, so finally they sent me back to my, but um, they put me back in the handcuffs and left me there for two or three hours. And I'll tell you, I was the worst 
feeling I've ever had. I cried like a baby. I felt like I was the most worthless, worthless person that had ever worn a uniform because I couldn't beat them. I see. Very interesting. And then I get back and, and one that's of that's not the fighter pilot's mentality for sure. That's right. You know? I get back to my cell and one guy's already back. And then the other guy, the toughest guy in the room, who was the New York State wrestling champion, he lasted a good bit longer than me, but he came back later. And uh, we all had done the same thing. And then when we finally got communications in the in the hall there a little bit, we found out that everybody had been through the same thing and done the same thing. Mm -hmm. They could make you do something not necessarily what they wanted right in something on these kinds of things. And they wouldn't let you die because you were a good, yeah. Hospital, you know, yeah, so they were going to take you to the point of where you would suffering and sacrificing. This is maybe a bit of an odd question, but when you were around, I say particularly your torturers, but you know, just maybe more general speaking, did you, did you look at your captors in the eye and did you, you know, what did you see? You know, it's an odd question, but I'm just curious, particularly those that might have been torturing you. Did did no. you just see evil people or what did you see? The real torture guys, the ones I had weren't the real torture guys Okay. at that point. The real torture guys were psychologically sick, psychopathic. They were in terrible. Uh, they, would, they would just laugh and... You know, I wouldn't even go into the details, but no it was conscience beyond, beyond what you can write. Okay. And, uh, they were psychologically, mentally ill, sick people. But the the people that were running the show generally day to day uh, were really more doing their job. You know, there were soldiers doing their job. Yeah, yeah. Just like we were dropping bombs, killing people, you know. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, no, I get that. I do. I get that. So, Lee, you talk about in your book uh, about Viktor Frankl. He wrote the great book, Man's Search for Meaning. Yeah. It's a powerful book that um, some may or may not recognize. I, 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 re I, I recommend it at pretty much every speaking engagement, yeah. any workshop I do, because, as you well know, it's about a, an Austrian psychologist who found himself in Auschwitz. And, uh, wow, I, you know, just chills going up my spine thinking that you experienced what he wrote about, but he talks about the uh, the power of meaning and purpose in tough times. You know what? What you know? Talk about that. What helped you through all of this? You know, I think uh, we believed in who we were and what we were doing. You got to mm. believe in yourself. And uh, although after experiencing that torture, I had some doubts about myself. And over the years, we all came to learn living with people locked up one cell I was in over 50 guys for almost two years and you're going to get to know them well, and they're going to get to know you and you learn to be authentic for one thing. Secondly, uh, you know what your purpose is and you're committed to it. Then you're willing to suffer for it. Wow. And so we were committed to suffer and be willing to, uh, that was our job, you know, and we're going to resist the enemy to the best of our ability. And then we're going to bounce back. If they make us give in and give something, we're going to bounce right back and come back. And that's what we did. And the fact that our leaders set that example, they went through the most torture, spent the most time in solitary confinement. We had three senior leaders that were there seven and a half years. They got captured early in the war, in the air war. And uh, they set such a great example for us. And they bounced back and bounced back and, stayed positive and believed in what we were doing. And it just, it really created a culture that was incredible. 
Yeah, and you talk about them in your book. I think yeah. uh, Risner or Risner, what uh, Jim Stockdale, who's who's right. well known to so many people in the Stockdale paradox, and then yeah. and then uh, uh, Denton. So yeah. maybe just tell us a little bit about you know how they impacted you or those three guys were the three senior ranking officers, and they supported each other if they were in the same camp. Risner was the he was Air Force. He was the senior guy, and Denton and Stockdale were right behind him, pretty close together. And Stockdale was a senior Naval Academy, Naval guy, not Naval. He was Naval Academy, but senior Naval guy. What rank was he at the time? I they, know were both, they were all 05, which okay. would be a commander in the Navy and a lieutenant uh, colonel in the Air Force. Okay. And they'd all been in the service, you know, 18 to 20 years. Okay. And right, they came in right after World War II, and they were captured in 1965. Mm. So. They they were just hitting 20 years when they uh, got captured there. Yeah. But they were incredible leaders. They were tough. They were tortured the most, spent the most time. They all spent more than four years in solitary confinement. Yes, we had uh, we had covert communication. So generally, we would be able to get in touch with them and they would get in touch with us. And uh, they would tell us what was going on with them and how to they had suffered and but they'd bounce back and. Yeah, and, just, and and they and they were then a sense of uh, they, they they you know for you all they their their leadership was was paramount right to be able to observe absolutely. them and how they directed you or really inspired you maybe they were you know here's the thing about leadership the great leaders are both confident and humble and when you're humble you can be uh, vulnerable and they were very vulnerable they talked about how they gave in and they gave them something. But they did their best to give them something that would be worthwhile. Whew. That gave me chills to hear that. So wow. talk about uh, a little bit, if you wouldn't mind, about uh, uh, Admiral Stockdale and, and, the, and the paradox that has become very well known to, to many people, particularly in our circles, but well beyond that. Talk mm -hmm. a little bit about that, that paradox and, you know, and, and how, it, you know, how, how it played out there about optimism and these other sorts of things. Yeah. Uh, one thing I will say about Jim, I know Jim Collins personally, I love all his books, yeah. but somehow in that process of what Stockdale was saying, he used the word optimism and Stockdale, he, what he meant was people who are overly positive and don't deal with the realities of the current situation, but you have to be an optimist. Optimism was the number one, being staying positive was the number one factor that enabled us to hang in there and come home healthy you have to believe and and the stockdale paradox says that you must never forget and and you must always believe that you're going to get through this but you have to deal with the realities of the current situation yeah stockdale paradox so it's yeah. kind of a picture in picture yes you know, when tv came out with picture mm -hmm, and picture. Mm -hmm. so the reality is you got to be able to switch back and forth and yes you got to open up and believe that uh, now is the time that that we we're going to believe that we can get through this, but at the same time, you got to deal with the suffering today. Wow, I I mean, listen, you know, I, I think everybody you know who's you know got at least one eye open has heard of this concept about you know having hope and being optimistic, and and um, you know and 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 also you know facing reality but this paradox that you talk about is is simple but so critical to just anybody correct that yeah. on the one hand when you're going through really really hard times 
you have to have hope and believe yep. in, 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 in your future, if you will. Right. But to your point, the paradox is, is, but at the same time, you gotta have your eyes wide open and see reality for what it is. Maybe just may a little bit suffer. more. Yeah, a and little bit more. You're going to have to suffer. And you got to be willing to suffer. Suffer. Oh, I mean, think of all the history of people suffering. And uh, if if you can't think of it easily, think of the POW's leaders suffering, okay? And how they bounced back. They were there seven and a half years. You know, Henry Ford has a short version of that I really like. He says, whether you believe you can or you can't, you're probably right. <laughs> Oh my gosh, that's so good. But so, so then how you, so how do you do that in real time? So you're suffering from whatever, how do you, how do you, is it self-talk? Do you talk to yourself? Do you just keep repeating? Do you keep, you know, you go from this and then you have to shift back to a positive mindset. How do you do that in, in practical terms, Ali? You know, for me, uh, I've said, Initially, I said, I can go home and we'll be home in six months because mm -hmm. President Johnson, he won't let this war keep going. He can't get reelected. He'll end it. And then he decided, announced in February, announced he wasn't going to run again. So the war lasted onward. But in the summer of 68, which is when I'd been there six months, I decided I could make it another year. And then the summer of 69, I said, well, I could make it two more years. But it was really three. But in, oh, interesting. There's the picture. I'm going to I'm going to make it out there. But day to day, you have to live day to day and you have to deal mm. with issues. And here's the thing. You have to deal with those issues and with but with the courage to coach yourself to do the thing that you know is right. Wow. Every day. You can't go wrong when you do your best to do what's right. You know, we have a courage uh, uh, model that we use and and basically it's it's it look, you look at it and you say oh yeah yeah I'll, I'll do i want to do all that but i'll tell you it's hard to do that day to day and so courage we put courage in the middle now because without courage you can't do it there's another great book uh uh courage the backbone of leadership by a guy who was on the, gus lee and uh, he, he's got this model. He shows all these things we believe over here, but then there's a river of fear. <laughs> you mm -hmm. got to cross it to get to the only way you can get across a river of fear is courage. I, I love that. The, 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 the analogy, the metaphor, if you will, of, of the river being of fear that it, it, there is another other side and you have to have courage to, to take that jump, walk, whatever it is that you have to do.